Hi, and welcome to episode three of the Haskell Cast. My co-host is Chris Forno. Hello. I'm Rain Henricks, and our special guest today is Simon Peyton Jones. Hi there. So, Simon, I'd like to start off with um, a question that has been in my mind lately about Haskell as it's achieving success. And I remember seeing you talk about avoiding success at all costs in the past. Do you think uh, that's still important to do or still possible to do at this point? Uh, well, I think it still kind of it kind of makes a good motto in a strange kind of way. I think the it was slightly tongue in cheek, as you may um, uh, as you may guess, uh, but I think the um, the idea, this, the sort of serious bit behind it, was that um, when languages become very successful and um, mainstream and embodied in millions of products with thousands of um, mainstream programmers using it, they, it becomes very hard to change them, and for good reasons, because those people don't want you to uh, change the language or the compiler or the libraries, um, uh, because that would mean that you know that they they don't have a sort of seamless upgrade path, and indeed we get. We, you know, people are increasingly a bit more stressed out about that in the Haskell community. Um, so in the past, we'd, we'd sort of uh, change the language or its libraries fairly, fairly liberally, um, and uh, somehow the Haskell community kind of put up with it. Um, but that didn't mean that the language is a lot more nimble, um, and its sort of library setup is a lot more nimble as well. And that's something I don't really want to lose entirely. Um, so that is a kind of delicate balance to play. As the, the more successful Haskell is, the um, in some ways the less nimble it becomes. Um, but at the moment, I feel that of the, um, it, it still has a kind of underlying sense that we're trying to do the right thing. So if it becomes clear that the right thing is a bit, uh, what's the word, disruptive, we'll somehow grit our teeth and do it. Uh, and the trick is kind of finding that balance. And do you think looking at the features coming into GHC 7.8 and those planned for 7.10 that uh, it's still nimble enough, in your opinion? Oh, yes. I think there's some pretty, fairly significant new things in, in 7.8 with um, closed type families and this uh, uh, coercible stuff. Um, that uh, That's a kind of experimental feature that we're working on with uh, Joachim Breitner. Um, uh, but there... Um, uh, and and roles also, um, which close a long-standing open type hole. So uh, quite a lot of that is stuff that if you don't use it, it won't bite you. So that's an easy direction to extend. Is things that um, uh, where um, uh, there's a, a sort of new feature to the language, but everything that was there before will work before. If any, it's actually it's not language changes that's the most difficult to manage. It's library changes. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we've recently established the core libraries committee um, to try to give the user community a stronger voice in what happens to the the libraries that come with GHC. Um, but I don't. So I think um, seven point eight is is what uh, it, most of the things are to do with um, uh, extending uh, kind of new features that won't really hurt you. The one, the one tricky area which has caused a lot more email about it than I expected is roles. Um, so this is where this is fixes a long-standing um, bug in in GHC's type system. It's uh, I even know the track ticket number off by heart. It's one four nine six, and we're up to eight four something something at the moment. So it's a long time ago, um, and it was when somebody pointed out that the the feature that we introduced into GHC a long time ago called general, generalized new type deriving in combination with type functions could lead to type unsoundness. That is, you could really make GHC text segfault by um, uh, you know, pretending that an integer was actually a character uh, or something like that. Um, so that was an unforeseen interaction between 
two rather different uh, sort of separately developed features. Um, and we wrote a popple paper in 2011 about how to cure this that introduced the idea of roles, but it's taken until now um, to actually fully implement it. Richard Eisenberg's been um, leading on that. Uh, but then the question is, oh, but if we close this type hole, then any any time you make the type system a bit stricter, as well as eliminating some bad programs that will take fault and should be excluded, you might also eliminate some good programs that are actually perfectly okay because type systems are by their nature what's the word conservative so we have been running about trying to make sure that we don't um rule out uh too many useful programs that actually are perfectly fine which is what type systems tend to do so we want to make the role type system just expressive enough to do that i think we have finally managed that but it remains to be seen but trying it out in practice is the only proof of that particular pudding mm-hmm. You also mentioned, I think, closed typed families as well. Um, could you explain what those are? Oh, yes. The idea is that for, for, um, for sometimes JHC has supported uh, type level functions, um, which are uh, so you can write a, um, a function that, that, is a, that works in the, in the type system. So you can say something like f of int equals char. So if you ever see in a type f applied to int, it's exactly equal to the type char. And this turns out to be very convenient and it works particularly smoothly in conjunction with type classes. Um, so when you see a type family, one of these type level functions in conjunction with a class, it's often called an associated type. And indeed, we first introduced these in response to a, a paper from... Um, um, uh, I can't even remember what year it was now, that was comparing Haskell with C++ and with various other languages. And Haskell came out really well, except that we didn't have these things called associated types. Um, so we looked closely at what associated types were in the C++ world and then figured out, oh, we could do that very reasonably. Um, now, but these type-level functions, because they uh, developed in conjunction with type classes, were open. That is, if you define a new type... Uh, let's say a new type called T, then you could define, then you could say what an old type function would do given that type. So if there was an existing type function called F, what is F of T with this new type? So it's a bit like saying if you've got an existing class like ORD and you define a new type called T, then you can say what the what C of T, what, what the, the T instance of the class C should be like. So it's very important in Haskell that class instances and similarly these type function instances should be open so that when you introduce new types, you can introduce new cases for the class instances or for these type family instances. But it turns out also that some of the time you want to define type level functions where you know that you will never want to introduce any new equations. Um, so think like a type level function for boolean and say well once you've defined what it does for true and false you're you're, you're all done right there are no there are no new types you could introduce that would make sense to um to add new equations for these um families so it makes sense for them to be closed and more so that's kind of matter of convenience it allows you to say give the the equations for the type function all the ones but more um importantly it also allows you to do something you can't do with open families, which is to declare um, functions that do pattern matching top to bottom. When you declare a value level function, you can say, uh, you can give several equations, and then as the last equation, you can say something like fxy equals blah, meaning if none of the earlier equations match, then this last equation matches. Now, with open 
um, type families, just like with type class instance declarations, there is no order between the declarations. There's just a an unordered collection of declarations, no notion of one occurring before another. With a closed type family, like a value level um, function declaration, you can give an order for the equations, and that is very, very convenient um, sometimes for declaring um, uh, for declaring a function. It dramatically reduces the number of equations you need, for example. Uh, there's a paper which has been accepted for Popple 2014, which is on my homepage that describes all about this. Richard was the lead author of that as well. It was a, it was one of those things that uh, Richard came for an, for an internship, and we said, well, we've been thinking about these type-level functions, these closed type-level functions for a bit. It looks like a fairly simple thing to do. Let's just do that as a warm-up project for your first week to sort of get you used to working on GHC. You know, ten weeks later, we were still wrestling with some of the complexities we'd uncovered. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Funny how that happens. This, this, uh, that's right. And so, as usual, when you that, that's the gl the glory of research is that rather than just having to hack around things to get things done, you can say, oh, well, here's an interesting problem. Let's study that. And so Richard's internship turned largely into a study of this particular problem that led um, fairly shortly thereafter to a, a submission which we um, sent to Popple and which happily they've accepted. Uh, and so you can see why it turned out to be such a tricky problem in that paper. Okay. I read a, or I watched a talk that you gave relatively recently about how to write research papers that I really enjoyed. And you said, don't, do the research and then write the paper, start writing the paper, and then that will force you to do the research. Right, right. And so it turned out, yes. <laughs> In this case, it was start implementing it. And that, that showed a lot, showed up a lot as well. Sometimes even when you write the paper, you, you don't really see all the, all the uh, complexities that are coming out. When you implement it, well, an implementation is a very unforgiving thing. It really forces you to work the details out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I find... Uh, a parallel there to the idea that until you ship software, you can't know if it actually works in any meaningful way, if it does what your customers want it to do, et cetera. Right, right. Um, and in fact, GHC's user base is amazing at discovering dark corners of GHC that I never thought of, you know. So they, <laughs> there's this continual stream of bug reports. I thought, darn, I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, speaking of papers that have had your name on them recently, I saw a couple uh, that looked interesting for the broader Haskell community. One was on Backpack for um, improving or extending the, the module system in Haskell. Mm, mm. Um, care to share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, when we designed Haskell in the first place back in 1990, there was, um, we thought, what sort of a module system should Haskell have? And at the time, there was really only um, one uh, sort of high-level contender in, in town, and that was the ML module system with functors um, uh, and so forth. But that was that's that was a fairly elaborate solution. And at that stage, we were still trying to design Haskell itself, and so we were not confident of our ability to combine all the things we were trying to put in into Haskell for the first time, along with the existing fairly um, sophisticated ML module system. So we opted to go to the other end of the spectrum, which is to say, what is the simplest module system we could possibly do that would close off as few avenues as possible? So that's what the Haskell module system turned out to be. Then about 15 years later, um, a group of people of which I, I, I contributed to, but was not, not the lead author, developed um, the ideas behind Cabal, which is saying the thing Haskell needs is a way to... Uh, um, aggregate and package groups of Haskell modules into units of um, distribution and versioning. 
Uh, and that led to cabal and hackage and the astonishing outpouring of creativity that has, has you know, that you see on Hackage. There were, I think, is it five and a half thousand packages there now? Or is it three and a half thousand? So it's sort of, uh, it's a, it's a, compared to the, the situation 10 years ago, it's just astonishingly much better. So, so, so think of Cabal as a kind of module system at a higher level. So Haskell has things called modules, but Cabal's packages are what other people might also call modules. That is units of aggregation, distribution, and versioning. Now then, but the, the trouble is that um, Cabal and Hackage have a serious problem, which is supposing I want to um, build a package that needs a random number generator, but I don't want to be specific about which random number generator. Well, I might like to say, look, I want to make my package which needs a random number generator, but I'm perfectly content to use any one that you happen to have. So what I'd like to do is to depend on a random number generator that provides this API, say. Um, but Cabal doesn't let you do that. In, your, in my package, um, uh, let's call it, you know, for my web server, say, my web server package, I'm forced to say I depend on, you know, this particular random number generator. I can give a version range and so forth, but I'm forced to point to a particular, like a hard link in a file system. Which random number generator do I depend on? And that's not good if you want to, um, if that, or your client wants to use it, you know, in a, in a context where you've got some other random number generator kicking around. You might, might like to use one for both packages that need random number generators. So it's not very component-wise. When you think of a software component, you'd like to think of a box that depends on some things and which supplies some things, you know, as its APIs out the top. But it doesn't, with the things that it depends on, shouldn't be hard links. They should be soft links. Anything satisfying that API and semantics should do. Does that make sense? I'm reminded of the, the rule that one should depend on abstractions and not concretions. There you go. It's exactly that. So at the moment, we depend on concrete things. And so the idea behind Backpack is very simple. It's just, just to say, how could we make Cabal packages? So this is actually nothing to do with the Haskell module system. It's really a proposal for Cabal um, stroke hackage. How could we make Haskell packages depend not on, um, uh, not on particular other packages, but essentially on APIs? Right. Um, and then, so then you have, um, then, then what you end up, before, before you know it, you've got a little domain-specific language to, for, de, for describing um, how uh, Cabal packages might fit together, and that's Backpack. Um, and, uh, and you need a little formal language for describing these APIs. Well, that's more or less um, sort of Haskell HS boot files. So this would put HS boot files, incidentally, on a proper formal basis at last. Um, so this would be a, this is a it, it's a, would be a I think a major step forward because it would um, it would get us at least partly out of the sort of cabal hell that people often complain about, um, uh, but it would be a big change, right? Because the the whole package infrastructure is something that's become quite widely embedded, you know, in a, in a in a in lots of people's setups. This would be a big big change in how we think about Haskell distribution and versioning. And we haven't implemented it yet either. Well, I think it'll be a welcome uh, one if uh, if we go forward, because Cabal Hell is, uh, is is definitely a problem, and, I, and we see people solving that currently with sandboxes. But even then, you can end up in uh, difficult situations. Yes, yes. I mean, there's there's, a, there's other things we can do towards that, which is that uh, the moment if you can't, if you have, um, uh, if you. Uh, if you've got a, a package that depends on, um, you know, uh, containers 4.7, and containers 4.7 depends on um, uh, some other... Uh, oh, but containers 4.7 in turn depends, let's say, on the random number generator package. Um, 
But then you need, you've got some, something else that also depends on containers 4.7, but with some different random number generator package. Um, then you can't have two, at the moment, GHC and, and, and its whole uh, package database system doesn't let you have versions of containers 4.7 compiled against two different versions of the random number generator. That's very stupid, really. It's just a, an annoying um, infelicity. So that if you, you know, it's, you, if you install the one, it, it sort of throws out the installation of the other, which breaks other completely unrelated things that are, you had installed. So it's very unfortunate. That's quite fixable. It takes some work. There's a Google, there's a Google Summer of Code project about it. Um, but it hasn't got it hasn't got to the point where it's sort of ready for prime time. So I think that's another thing. It's much more modest improvement than this backpack thing um, that would make a lot of people's lives better. I'd love to see that fixed. So annoyingly, you, you can certainly have a, you can install containers 2.7 and containers 2.8 simultaneously. That's no problem. What you can't at the moment do, which is totally irritatingly stupid, is you can't depend, you can't compile, uh, you can't install two versions of containers 2.7 that depend on different versions of its dependencies. I, I'm glad that you also think that uh, that's a bit ridiculous because I've run into that a few times now, and it's it's maddening um, when it happens. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's kind of like, yeah, it it shouldn't be like that, but. Um, and this is not, uh, you know, it's not a bunch of code that I've ever had anything to do with. Um, but the fact that there was a whole Google Summer of Code, code project working on fixing it that, that I think is not, presumably didn't get, I assume didn't get far enough to be ready for prime time indicates that it's not a trivial problem to solve. Mm-hmm. Yes, Cabal Hell is a real place, a very real place. <laughs> where, where some, of us, sandbox. some of us spend a fair amount of our time. Yeah, but so so somebody ought to fix this, you know? How hard can it be? The whole cabal sandbox thing is is a is a um, as I understand it is at least partly a solution to that problem, but it's a kind of workaround to the real problem, right? And, so and even in a sandbox, the real problem. Yeah, even in a sandbox, you can end up with the same situation. But you've given me a perfect segue to ask you about uh, the future of GHC, especially with the recent announcements of uh, people some some major contributors who have moved on. Uh, what is, uh, what's the plan there and how can more people get involved? What, would, what advice would oh, you well. give? Oh, wow. Yeah, so I think it's quite an exciting time, really. So um, uh, Simon moving to uh, Facebook has been a, um, uh, you know, is, is a, is a, has increased Facebook's Haskell bandwidth quite a lot, <laughs> which is great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> think because I know he's working on Haskelly things there. He keeps he, he gives talks about it, um, but of course it has reduced the sort of immediate application of um, Simon's amazingly high-powered um, mind to GHC itself. Um, so, uh, but GHC uh, is is like twenty years old now, or maybe even twenty-two. You know, that's the stage at which um, children leave home and go out into the world. Uh, I'm beginning to think of GHC a bit in in that way too. That um, you know, the, the truth is that it's not, um, JHC isn't my compiler anymore, or Simon Marlowe's compiler, or Ian Liner's compiler. It's, it's, uh, it's all of ours. Um, and I think increasingly the, you know, the, the, the you know, Haskell, uh, sort of core Haskell community is, um, is actually already stepping up to the task of saying, all right, well, um, we need to work on this together rather than just um, sitting and hoping that Simon and Simon will fix it. Um, because I absolutely, you know, I, I'm anything that waits for me to do something about it has to wait a long time <laughs> because I, 
as a sort of I'm I'm a I've become a bottleneck and I don't want to be a bottleneck because I want people to feel kind of empowered to just get on and do things. I'd like to maintain some level of um uh some level of what's the word uh, overview and um uh, discussion about some of the core pieces like the type checker um in particular but i do want to encourage people to just get stuck in and a lot of people have so i think in the in the latest status report um that you'll see actually it's online now but it'll it'll be in the haskell communities um uh, report which is the, the next one but if you anybody if anybody goes to the jhc track and clicks on status report um, under the October 13th status report, what does it say? I think it says there are um, 23 new committers have joined, oh no, 14 new committers added in 2013 alone, 37 committers in total. So that's quite a lot of people, right? Yeah. 37 people who uh, can actually commit to GHC already and quite a lot more beyond that who are contributing to patches. It seems to me that Simon's departure may have left a, a, a pretty obvious space for that people could step up to fill. Perhaps, perhaps some people felt, well, that's that's Simon's area of expertise. I don't want to step on his toes or something like that. Maybe yes, and I think, but I think it's been a bit broader than that. It's not just into the into sort of, um, uh, you know, Simon was um, particular patch was a runtime system, which I think is actually still a bit under resourced. I would love more people to get um, involved in the runtime system. Uh, but I think it's I think it's more generally served as a kind of wake up call to everybody that um, uh, uh, that JHC need you know needs all of our help. I mean, apart from anything else, making making JHC work on lots of different platforms is a big job because every platform has its own quirks. So, so I think in some ways, perhaps his 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 departure has served as a kind of uh, oh uh, all right, actually we do we we do need to get busy busy here, um, which is I think a really positive. Um, outcome rather than everybody feeling disappointed um, I think it's it's actually been quite a good thing in, in its way um, because ultimately uh, it the, a GHC will only live on and grow and develop if a lot of people start to take ownership and new new developers means a new pool of ideas and skills that, that may improve GHC yeah yeah that's right um, and GHC is very big these days you know it has uh, um, it has very large surface area and has all sorts you know there's dynamic linking which is a whole world that i know nothing about again it's fairly complicated there's all these multiple platforms there's the template haskell pieces um there's the type system there's the you know back-end code generation there's um trying to do data parallel stuff there's really a lot of independently independent moving parts there's the libraries i mean and the libraries are not trivial things like the the new parallel io manager was a big project all by itself um but much of it is implemented in haskell itself as part of the um uh, the you know the, the the IO library part. So it sounds like you're ready to step into more of a strategic position for for GHC. What what do you envision as that as that role going forward? Oh, I I don't I don't think I have a very uh, sort of um, clear plan there. I suppose I mean the moment because I'm spending a good deal of my time probably um, no a third to a half of my time I'm spending on um, the computing at school education stuff that we were mentioning before we started this um, uh, the interview part. Um, that means I've got less time to spend on GHC itself. And um, and indeed, I'm still a researcher, right? GHC is, is still in, developing and maintaining GHC as a usable platform is not my day job. You know, I'm meant to be a computer science researcher. So that's an interesting tension to play all the time. So um, I, I, I don't... I wouldn't want to see myself in, you know, as, as a in too much of a controlling role, right? That everything must be approved by me at all. I think it's, uh, um, I think the more that a 
uh, you know, a larger group of people step up to um, playing a sort of responsible and thoughtful role in which they're not just contributing random pieces of code, but themselves are reviewing other people's patches and saying, does this fit and does this make sense? Which, And I think people increasingly doing that, the better. I, that's, that's a good thing. And I would be happy to, you know, play my part in that. Um, but uh, uh, but not, in a, not in, a, in a dominant way, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you don't want to become the benevolent what is the phrase? Benevolent dictator for life. Benevolent so. dictator. Well, I think there is a there is a kind of role for benevolent dictatorship at some point, like this on this records thing, for example. We were kind of going around in circles and getting nowhere. Um, so eventually, I did decide. Well, somebody's got to do something here. So um, Adam Gundry's summer of code project this this year was to work on uh, the simplest increment to the record system that we could come up with that would improve the terrible situation. You can't have two records with the same field name. Um, so there comes a point at which it is quite helpful to have somebody to say, okay, let's just decide. Uh, mm -hmm. So on the compiler proper, probably I'm a benevolent dictator. And on the, for the core libraries, for example, now we've got a core library, libraries committee. They collectively have the benevolent dictator supervised by the sort of supreme benevolent dictator of the current chair, Edward Kmet. Um, so I, I do think we need a way to take decisions. You can't let all decisions be taken by um, sort of universal consensus, because there are some things in which you never will get universal consensus. You just got to decide and do something, because it's a terrible waste of everybody's time if you keep going around in circles. Okay, so so while I'm on the subject of papers with you, I, another one that looked really interesting from a, um, you know, Haskell holds all this promise for massively parallel and fast programs. And I saw a paper exploiting vector instructions with generalized stream fusion with your name on it. Could you right. go into what that is? Right. Yes. So this is a um, a paper joint with um, Jeffrey Mainland um, and Roman Lachinsky. This is about um, if you um, if you want to exploit um, the vector instructions on on uh, machines, all processes these days come with instructions that work on uh, sort of double words or quad words, or they, they get, they're getting wider and wider. So single instructions can work on four floating point numbers at a time. And if you can actually generate code that works on four floating point numbers at a time, it jolly well goes a lot faster and makes much better use of the memory infrastructure as well. Um, so this paper is about how to expose that to the programmer in a reasonably high level and high level and principled way. Um, and uh, there, the name of the game is to do with um, array fusion. What you want to do is you want to, if you could write programs. Uh, that manipulate vectors or arrays as the wholes. You say, you know, A plus B, meaning the array A plus the array B. Then you can see that underneath, you could probably manage to do um, uh, a loop that would uh, work over the vectors in a kind of efficient way, um, rather than writing the code element-wise. Um, but then if you write A plus B times C, now you don't want, what you don't want to do is generate the intermediate vector in the middle. You want to fuse it away so that you would generate one loop that works over um, uh, works over all three. Um, and the paper is about how to. Oh, but and then the trick is that we we've known to, how to do that at least to some extent for some time. This is embodied in Roman Lachinsky's vector library using so-called stream fusion. The paper is about how to generalize stream fusion in, in such a way that we can exploit vector instructions as well. So it's part of the whole story about how to exploit 
parallelism in modern modern processor architectures. And I think if you were to exploit parallelism, you've got to start with a language that is by default functional rather than a language that is by default imperative. So I think Haskell is a great place to start for doing um, parallel computation and particularly data parallel computation. And this project is just one part of that. All right, let's let's change gears a little bit. I saw a lot of postings on Twitter that this year's ICFP and CUFP felt a lot different than previous years. Uh, did it feel the same to you? Actually, it felt it felt quite the same to me. Actually, yeah, yeah. What, what, what way did they say it was different? Mind I, you, I, I think... you know, you have to remember. I have been going to. I've been, I was as I as I realized as I was traveling to ICFP this year. I've been going to this conference for thirty years. Um, so uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people that I uh, go there who I know very well now, but I meet, meet them there every year. So it's kind of like a reunion for me more than anything else. So maybe I wouldn't notice. I'd notice a different collection of things than other people. So the. The difference that stuck out for me was the increase in size of the commercial users side. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I don't know if uh, I remember hearing that it really could have gone more than a day uh, this time. Right, right, and I and I couldn't go to CUFP at all because the I want I want ICFP spread out. You know, I want to go to all of the things. So it, it was sort of co-scheduled with was it the Haskell Symposium or something or something else that I was involved in. Um, so I was frustrated oh, not I to be see. able to go to CUFP at all. Um, I want it to be serialized so I can go to everything, but then it would take two weeks, <laughs> probably too mm-hmm. much. Um, uh, no, CUFP was a. Um, uh, we kind of started it, I guess, what was it, about four or five years ago, partly in response to feeling, well, functional programming is getting out of the um, um, out of the lab and into the hands of real users. And we ought to have a, a kind of developer-oriented conference that was more um, oriented towards use and application. Um, and uh, so it's uh, initially it was a bit sort of, you know, we had to shake the bushes, bushes to find enough speakers. But this year, as I, as I understand it, they were kind of oversubscribed with potential speakers, which is fantastic. And there's lots of interesting things going on. Yeah. So I do have the sense that um, uh, functional programming is still on a, on a fairly significantly rising curve as far as both recognition and actual real-life application in industry. So I remember that you talked uh, a couple of years ago about a couple of years ago about Haskell being a safe but useless language in its conception and how it's, it's sort of <laughs> moved towards being more useful over time. Do you see parallels with the state of Haskell today being more useful uh, and its uh, wider adoption in, in uh, commercial and industry use? No, no, I don't think so. I don't think, I, I don't, I don't think there's any, um, anything particularly about the, language that's changed i think the ecosystem has changed in that there's a lot more um a lot more libraries available and you know and serious web frameworks like that yes or snap um that didn't exist before so maybe it's uh, just reached some sort of tipping point socially where the ecosystem support is there and, and people are starting to be more aware of it i think it's more like that yes yes and indeed you know the the whole uh, safe but useless thing was also similarly tongue-in-cheek to um to the uh, avoid success at all costs uh that, that by that when where haskell was born right it because the only input output we had was pretty much string to string or some not much more than that it was almost useless but the um but but it was principled and that was what 
and, and, and the reason we didn't add random ad hoc IO by side effects is because you just can't do that in a lazy language. So it kind of forced us to stay principled. So um, in a way, what I uh, like about working with Haskell, what I like about the Haskell community is that there's a strong emphasis on somehow doing it right. And if we don't yet know how to do it right, we'll just you know struggle along. So I think over the last you know 20 years, certainly, we've done a lot to knock down the obstacles between uh, pure, you know, principled, pure functional programming and reality. And so, you know, the IO monad and all that was a huge thing. I think um, having a highly concurrent runtime system is quite big. STM, I think, was really very helpful. A good foreign function interface, enormously helpful. Doing Cabal and the um, the sort of uh, package ecosystem, fantastic. So all of these things have made a big differences to practical utility. Um, but I think they then they kind of act collectively, if you like. I don't think you could point to anyone and say that was it. You just say, it's more of a, a, a tipping point. Um, and even now, I think I, I, one of the images I sometimes have in my mind is that Haskell is kind of like a fungus. You know those fungi that grow under forest floors and you can't see them. They just pop up here and there. But actually, it travels for a long way underground. I think often when you talk to people, they say, oh, I, I use Haskell in my spare time or for hobby projects or perhaps for side projects at work. But my manager doesn't really know yet. I'm waiting for a new tipping point when Haskell becomes sort of effect, uh, you know, acceptable to and indeed encouraged by management as well as uh, the sort of techie types. I think that will come too. It seems to me like if if the designers of Haskell years ago had had gotten sort of fed up with trying to do principled IO and just sort of gone, all right, you know what, forget it. We're going to make Haskell impure just because we don't know how to solve this IO problem. That may have had a lot of ramifications for what we're currently able to do because Haskell is a pure language. Yeah, uh, that's right. And that's why some, as, some, as, as many of your listeners will know, some I often say that the important thing about laziness is that it kept us pure. Right, because you can't really screw around with side effects if you have a lazy language, because the order in which the side effects take place is so hard to predict. Um, so it sort of it kind of forces you to wear the hair shirt of purity, which was terribly good for us in the end. Yeah, that's that's another image that stuck with me uh, for quite a while. Uh, the the hair shirt, and I believe I remember seeing you talk about that in the context of just that with uh, with I/O being string to string. Yeah. So what what yeah. hair shirts is the uh, is the Haskell community still wearing right now? What what would you like to see aside from you know a new record syntax, which I don't know how itchy that one really is. Hmm. Well, I'm the wrong person to ask, really. Um, <laughs> to me, to me, I would think this large scale modularity question is the sort of the the the, the elephant in the room that uh, being able to build software components. With indefinite depend abstract dependencies rather than concrete dependencies is the is the sort of the big large scale structuring issue that um, uh, that we have. Um, I also think that the the and I suppose the other large scale question that, that's in my mind is I I keep saying that um, oh, I've got two here one one is I keep saying that if you want to program a parallel machine you should start with a functional language, um, but parallelism is very hard taskmaster because the whole point about parallelism is you need you're trying to get performance right so prototype parallel implementations that don't run very fast aren't interesting right it doesn't it doesn't matter if your asymptotics are better or if your constant factors are exactly yes no then and no, no then nobody cares 
and yet to make things actually run fast on a parallel machine requires a lot of engineering cycles and it's a complex and sort of multifaceted problem there is no single solution to uh, you know the best way to do parallelism you know something you need domain specific languages perhaps or you need to have semi-implicit parallelism using pars and seeks or you need data parallelism maybe you need nested data parallelism there's a it's a big complicated landscape and then making all those moving parts work so well together that you get good constant factors as well given that in effect you have to give initially you have to give up quite a lot just because everything's complicated so to make all the complications not get in the way and screw you up and slow you down um it is a lot of hard work so it's a big engineering challenge um and i feel as if we're not we haven't kind of really met that engineering challenge um well yet you know so there's there's um if you think about who's really working on um uh, making parallel Haskell, or indeed any parallel function language, go fast. There's, you know, there aren't that many groups in the world, um, and I think we need um, we need more people to work on that because it because it takes engineering cycles. The other big thing was is um, uh, contracts or something like it. So functional programmers are um, uh, famed for saying, "Oh, uh, you should write a, your program in a functional language because it makes your program easier to reason about." Um, and I think that's absolutely true, but we don't. But as functional programmers, we tend to say that more than we actually do it. That is, we don't do that much reasoning about functional programs, at least not in a machine-supported, automated kind of way. So a type system is a weak reasoning mechanism, and, and so one very productive line that we have followed quite successfully is to say, how can we take the type system and develop it so that it becomes more expressive? That is, lets you uh, gets in your way less and lets you say what you mean more. Um, but I think we need to go a bit further and say, what? how could you um, write down properties of programs and prove them in an automated way? Um, so we've got QuickCheck that lets you prove, uh, that lets you test properties of programs, but we'd like to prove properties of programs. So Ranjit Jala's um, work on liquid Haskell, which is based on his liquid types uh, stuff. And early work I did with um, uh, Dimitrios um, and uh, um, Dana Zhu. Uh, kind of examples of work in that direction, but I think they're they're also big things. Uh, that if we could make it easier to reason in a machine-supported way about programs, so that you could say, for example, you will not get a pattern match failure in this part of the program, that would be really helpful. That's the next sort of Rubicon. Is we, we know if if you like at the moment we know that we're not going to get seg faults, modulo bugs, uh, but we sh you should never get a seg fault on a Haskell program, right? But I'd like also to say we can provably not get pattern match failures either, um, or assertion failures. Uh, that would be great. That's a much harder challenge in general. Um, oh, and uh, Neil Mitchell did work on the, did work on this in his PhD thesis as well. Um, but I think it's it, it's understudied in the functional programming world. You know, we should be we should be streets ahead of those imperative guys. But actually, the imperative guys do lots of work on automated reasoning about um, about imperative programs. We should be we should be doing lots more. So if I could talk to you for a second about parallelism in, in Haskell, it, mm. it it seems to me like we have a lot of building blocks, a lot of tools, but they're either very abstract or very low level. And it seems like some of them are new. Most of them are old ideas rediscovered. I mentioned uh, commutative data structures before we started. And mm -hmm. that that idea comes directly from process calculus. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not at all a new idea. Um, th there are some newer ideas, like uh, 
lattice-based variables for monotonically updating variables. Uh, but these are all very low-level building blocks. It, it doesn't seem like we have a large-scale construction or framework for parallelism yet. I think I'm not very optimistic about any one grand plan for parallelism. So uh, I can see at least three different, you know, qualitatively different kinds of parallelism going on at the moment. At one level, there's um, Cloud Haskell, which is about a sort of Erlang-style concurrency with no shared memory between um, between these sort of large processes, each of which could be doing shared memory concurrency in the middle. Um, and uh, Tim Watson and and uh, uh, colleagues that he's working with have been making good progress on that. Um, then there's a very then there's a different kind of thing, which is the shared memory concurrency um, synchronized at the moment principally with um, uh, software transactional memory. And this is you know concurrent Haskell with fork IO and um, MVARs or LVARs and um, and there's a lot of interest and in, in principle that's pretty non-deterministic but there's also quite a lot of interest in oh and it's non-deterministic by design I and mean, it should be because uh, you've got different I/O performing threads that you know may proceed at different rates because depending on what their I/O does and it requires communication between processes. Yes, yes, that's right. And that communication is going to be handled in a somewhat um, side effecty way, hence the monadic nature of it. Um, and and then the you know the, some of the work that Simon Rallo and more recently Ryan Newton and and um, other colleagues have been doing on um, Elvish, I think they they're calling it these uh, lattice based variables, is to do with trying to say even in this slightly imperative monadic um, uh, explicitly explicit concurrency paradigm, you may be able to get a guarantee of determinacy. And if you can, that's very useful for the sub-problems for which that is that works well. Lindsay Cooper had a paper on LVARs, which are basically this lattice-based variable idea that she presented, I believe, at it, CUFP. That seemed very interesting. Uh, right. Or was it maybe the FPHC, the Functional Programming for High-Performance high Computing stuff? Yes, that's right. That's what that she did with, uh, with, um, with Ryan, I think. Um, then there's some um, uh, well, and then this sort of the, the stuff about um, concurrent data structures, I guess, fits in that um, patch. Um, and then there's the um, uh, purely functional parallelism. So all the stuff about data parallel Haskell or um, the vector library or Repr or the uh, generalized stream fusion stuff. That's all um, any um, stuff to do with. Uh, manipulating shared data structures carefully is all hidden away there. That's just purely functional operations on functional data structures, but making sure that they work in a data parallel way. So these are very different programming paradigms, and I don't really see... I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm not optimistic about one overarching plan. I think parallelism is too complicated to slay with one bullet, and we're going to always have a variety of weapons. I, I totally agree. I, th I think... What I meant was maybe more within each paradigm, it seems like the tools we have are relatively immature, surprisingly so, for how long we've been working at, at doing parallel computing. Yes, maybe that's true. And perhaps that's reflecting partly what I was saying about sort of lack of lack of cycles, you know, that, we, that these things take a long time to implement. They take a lot of work. Uh, but I think that the more that we have, I mean, what I, what, what, one one place that I think we're doing reasonably well is that at least GHE ships out of the box with, uh, you know, it should work on a multi-core just as it comes, you know, and and people 
occasionally say, well, you know, I, in, in their blog posts, I just uh, wrote this program and then I made a few changes and it ran three times as fast on my quad core. I love, love hearing that because it means that something is working reasonably well out of the box. But I think you're right that we're still in a, in a fairly early stages of figuring out how to make sure that our constant factors work well. I mean, functional programming at all gives you less of a handle on constant factors. So if you're writing, uh, I don't know, um, some kind of data parallel array processing code in C, you're very careful to think about every memory access. If you're writing it in Haskell, you tend to have all these, well, we'll take one array and we'll generate another array and then we'll you know, consume that and generate another. And we'd like to make all of those happen in one fused loop. So, um, and that we know re we have a reasonable story to tell, not a perfect one, but a reasonable one when you have um, where each produced array has one consumer. But when an array has more than one consumer, that fusion, the stream fusion technology doesn't work at all well. Um, and yet, you may still be able to do it, and still be able to generate a single loop that generates the one array and both its consumption sort of in lockstep. And that's what um, is happening in Ben Lipmeyer's paper that he presented, I think, at the Haskell Symposium um, about uh, series expressions. Uh, so it's a way of trying to look at a, a piece of, essentially a piece of data flow code, you know, a piece of data parallel code, spot the areas in which you can sort of synchronously produce all the all the results, knowing exactly, you know, you produce one element here and it's consumed by, by ex exactly over these two places. And you can have a little sort of patch of code, which can all work synchronously as one loop. You fuse it all together, no intermediate arrays. It's brilliant. Um, so we're still in the early days of that. Um, and I, I think there's plenty of room for people to contribute. Oh, and by the way, we wanted to work on GPUs as well, you know? <laughs> right, of course. And it, it may also be that we've only really started exploring real-world parallelism recently, maybe in the past 10 years, with the shift towards multi-core CPUs and distributed processes across multiple machines and things like that. We may just not have the, you know, the experience working in that environment. Yeah, and I think uh, the, the, all this parallel hardware has only recently become available in a commodity way so that most people have it. Rather, previously, it was as you, know, you could buy yourself a parallel machine if you managed to get a research grant. Now it's all in your laptop. So um, it makes it much more widely. You know, only in the last, uh, certainly 10 years, maybe less, has it become, has parallelism become something that um, lots of people can experiment with and use. Um, but it is, I, you know, that. It needs work uh, because part, exactly because Haskell is a high-level language, right? If you're in a low-level language, well, then you can say, oh, just program this GPU in CUDA, and, you know, I know where every cycle goes. Um, and if, you, if you're prepared to take the work to do that, well, sure, you get a program that runs fast, but it's an awful lot of effort. So, but to take these high-level programs and generate them for these low-level architectures in ways that have good constant factors is a real challenge. And I think it's, well, the... Data Parallel Haskell Project, which we started with Manuel Chakravarti and Gabriel Keller um, at the University of New South Wales. We started, oh, I dread to think, eight years ago, six years ago, and we're still working on it because, you know, we, we sort of knocked down problems one at a time, but there were more behind. It's really hard to get from this very high level to the very low level stuff with good constant factor behavior. Also, my experience from working with, for instance, uh, Roman's Vector Library is there's still, for me at least, somewhat of an art to getting that to run quickly to getting it to fuse properly. I still yeah. have to write something and, and then kind of think, well, I wonder, I wonder what vector is going to do to optimize this. And then if I, if I really want to know, I have to go print out core and, and look what it's doing, but I don't have a right. good sort of scientific understanding of how I make a vector library using programs fast. Right. Right. 
And I don't, um, I don't think that's anything wrong with, with Roman's library. I think it's there's a lack of, of sort of a conscious understanding of, of how that works. Well, and there is some potential fragility in there. Well, one of the um, in, 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 inside it as well, one of the, the, the way in which a lot of the optimization happens is that we do a lot of pretty vigorous inlining, and then we can see you know, in one static piece of code that one function is being cons- a function that produces an array is being consumed by a function that consumes an array, and then we can fuse the two together. Um, but that all relies on quite a lot of inlining happening. And if any one of the moving parts in the way, you know, sort of doesn't fire, uh, then uh, the whole thing falls apart and you get terribly bad performance. So I think one of the things we've not really got a good handle on yet is how to be sure that you're getting good performance. Yeah, my, um, my experience with, with Vector has been that, that performance is a bit fragile that even something like an edit reduction uh, seems sometimes to affect the, the ability for it to fuse and it seems like i have to do some mystical stuff maybe read my tea leaves before i write some vector code and, and hope that it properly fuses yeah yeah and that we could we could do with some help there i think um the uh, i mean the the big advantage is that vector is not a um, a Haskell plugin, or or even a you know, it's not it's not a modified version of GHC. It's just all library code. We're using these rewrite rules, um, and so the the rewrite rules are, are the bit that does the magic, which you write in your library. That was a that was a a huge win, much a much bigger, a much higher impact um, innovation that we put in GHC uh, twelve years ago than I ever expected. Andrew Tomac had the idea. Um, and we wrote this paper playing by the rules that uh, that described uh, what we did, but it, it turned out to be hugely um, sort of it opened up an extension point for GHC that has been turned out to be hugely more valuable than we initially anticipated. Um, but uh, as far as predicting performance goes, then this is this is actually not new. So if you if uh, uh, any of your listeners are old enough, they may remember in trying to program craze. And if you know, will my loop vectorize? Well, you kind of have to read the tea leaves there and write your loop in the way that the vectorizer will get at it. Um, so this has been a problem for a long time, but it's a, it's something that we you know needs still needs work. Now, one of the good things about Guy Blalock's work on nested data parallelism is that it sort of came with a cost model. So it gave you at least some chance of a high-level picture about performance and that 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 kind of high level story that says if you write your program in this kind of way within this kind of source language way without looking at core you can get some predictions about performance that that would be really good to have a much better handle on that so so simon is there anything uh that you can share about your current research uh so what am i working on um at the moment i think uh, one thing that came came up fairly recently is, uh, and this arose, um, you know, at a conversation um, at a conference with uh, Joachim Breitner, is uh, trying to give a better handle on new type um, coercion. So new types have been in Haskell since the beginning, and you can convert with zero cost um, between. Uh, uh, let's see, my fa- favorite example is always new type age equals muck age of int. So an age is simply an int, but it's dressed up as an age, so you don't um, uh, add two ages together, uh, say. Um, and you can convert between ages and ints for free, um, at runtime for free, by using the muck age constructor or pattern matching on the muck age constructor. But if you have a list of ages, you can't convert them to a list of int except by using map. Um, and actually, we know that should be 
kind of quotes fui as well at runtime you should just be able to convert a list of ages to a list of imps they're represented identically so what we need is a a clearer handle on what we mean by quotes represented identically and it turned out that's exactly what all this role stuff was about um, that we were mentioning earlier is a uh, it, it had it, it introduces a clear distinction of two kinds of equalities two types are either nominally equivalent meaning in which age is not nominally equivalent to int right age and into distinct types at the haskell level but they are representationally equivalent um, so you need two flavors of equality nominal equality and representational equality um, and the, the role system sort of articulates that explicitly and we're now building that more deeply um, into ghc's intermediate language and then you can add the idea that maybe we could then expose that to the programmer so that they could convert um list of age to list of in uh, for free which i and which i feels like the right thing because the whole point about new types is they're meant to give you the opportunity to do abstraction but uh without making you pay right that's why partly why people use new types or data types but as soon as you wrap it up in a data structure you have to pay and that's always i always felt that was unfortunate um so that's one thing that is it will be a kind of experimental feature in 7.8 meaning um, it might change, so you can't rely on it. The API staying the same, um, but I'm quite excited about it. Uh, what else uh, is working on? Um, Yavo has been um, working on a, um, uh, uh, a improving the solver for um, type level naturals, and this is a bit, so this is more type level reasoning, um, building more type level reasoning into GHC, um, and I think we're likely to do more and more of that because type systems are such a powerful and effective way of saying what you mean in your program and have the compiler catch you when you make silly errors um, so in the last release of ghc i think we made uh, we introduced type level um, natural numbers for literal so you could have a type like three um, or um, you know vector three int meaning a vector of length three but you couldn't really do any useful arithmetic on them um, now you can do in 7.8 you'd be able to do some basic arithmetic and the next version you'd be able to do yet more in fact, Yavo and Dimitrios spent last week trying to connect up um, GHC's constraint solver to an external SMT solver. Um, so we'd like to, to make it possible to extend the type system really quite radically with um, new theories, I mean, a new external solver rather than the rather basic internal solver that GHC has. Um, so that's kind of extending the, the type system part. Then the other piece I, w I really hope to um, to work on a bit and um, uh, um, uh, Nikki Vazu, who's, who works with Ranjit Jala um, at UCSD, is, is spending the summer, or not the summer, the, uh, the, she's an intern here at, at Microsoft, um, just this, uh, uh, this autumn working with Dimitrios, and we're hoping to work a bit on making the, the Liquid Haskell work even better and thinking, you know, what, what are the problems with Liquid Haskell and how could we make it better? This is along the lines of the opportunity I was describing of reasoning more about functional programming. I'd like to make um, Liquid Haskell or something like it readily available to anybody who wants to use it and fluidly you know fluidly works you can just re reason much more powerfully about your haskell programs so i suppose those are the and then for me I, I spend quite a lot of my time just dealing with the hum of the business you know people say what about this and what about that and uh, you know here's a here's a patch that would do this and then or a new bit of template haskell i feel like i should really pay attention to that so it quite occupies quite a bit of my time in fact um though i'm sure everybody feels a bit frustrated when i'm not paying uh, you know not responding um, swiftly enough uh, on the parallelism side, I'm still very interested in, but to be honest, now Simon's moved, the center of gravity is not at MSR. The center of gravity is, is um, with uh, at UNSW um, 
with Manuel and Gabby and Ben Lipmeyer and at um, uh, now at Drexel, where Jeff Mainland has moved to, and anybody else who'd like to get stuck in with, oh, and with Tim Watson at um, uh, on the Cloud Haskell Fund. Uh, but and, I, and I'm sort of acting very much in a supporting, supporting role there, really. And would you like to take a moment maybe to talk about the uh, computing in school project that you've been working on? I know it's not Haskell, but I think it's probably interesting to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. This is um, something that's been occupying a um, uh, pretty large slice of my life in the last um, couple of years, certainly. Um, in the in Britain, we um, have a school subject called ICT, Information and Communication Technology, that is statutory in the sense that every child must learn it um, uh, from primary school onwards. So there's a kind of slot in our curriculum. But over time, it had become rather focused on the use and application of computers, sometimes in thoughtful imagine and imaginative ways, but definitely the use and application of, uh, indeed, you know, application software like word spreadsheets and databases and word processors and presentation software. Um, and we'd lost any sight of um, how computers work or, indeed, never really got sight of computer science as a discipline in a way that you might think of maths or physics or even you know English or geography as a discipline that school children might learn. So we do teach science and maths at elementary level, um, even at primary school. And so the um, the aim of the Computing at School Working Group, which is what I helped start in 2008 in Britain, was to um, try to reform our um, ICT curriculum to include a a clear strand of computer science as a foundational discipline, um, and thereby to attract. Um, uh, computer science qualified teachers into the profession because there were very very few because until now there hasn't been a reason to become a an ict teacher if you're a computer scientist because you wouldn't get to teach any computer science um so uh, so for a long time it was like pushing water uphill you know the way it, it usually is with um, good causes that people believe in and this is not something that's unique to britain i mean there's, there's little working groups in all, all parts of the world in the united states it's called the computer science teachers association and lots of ancillary groups have been working on the same kind of thing but in britain we made a lot of progress recently because the um the Royal Society produced a report that uh, strongly endorsed this kind of position, and then the Department of Education decided to review the whole national curriculum. And in the end, to cut a very long story short, the, um, they outsourced writing the new revised national curriculum to a working group that um, uh, I ended up chairing. So we wrote a new national curriculum. If, you, if, any, if anybody types in national curriculum computing UK, you'll probably find the new national curriculum for computing in the UK. Um, and this covers, you know, ages six through 16. It's just been published two weeks ago. And it says that every child should learn computer science from primary school onwards in, in black and white. It's just amazing. Uh, so now our, our, our focus has shifted to training and supporting and equipping um, our, our existing ICT teachers to become computing teachers. Oh, the title of the, the subject was changed as well from ICT to computing. Um, so really, we've seen a great deal of movement in a very short time in Britain. Um, it was, a, I think it was a, an overdue move, uh, but it has now happened very quickly. And the challenge is to make sure that it happens, as it were, uh, you know, uh, with schools feeling excited, enthusiastic and confident in delivering this new curriculum rather than, you know, messed about by an unthinking government. Is, is functional programming or concepts from it going to play a role in this? I remember in the United States, uh, computer science education was very focused on imperative data structures and sorting and so on. I think people are hopeful that the next generation will understand 
functional concepts uh, from from the very beginning. Well, there's nothing imperative about sorting, um, and uh, so I think it's the in in writing the draft national curriculum, I tried very hard to uh, not to be specific about language, certainly not about programming languages, uh, or even about language paradigms. Um, so I think it would be perfectly possible to teach the national curriculum using a sort of functional programming strand, but the the part the part of the statutory says nothing about that. Um, and indeed, uh, even you know more generally in the um, computing at school community. Oh, incidentally, I should say that anybody who's listening to this is welcome to you know you can join the computing at school working group. It's open to people from any country. It's free to join, and you get no email spam. It's just a um, you know, online community that you can get a little window into. So just type computing at school um, into your web browser and the first thing you'll find is the computing school working group and it's easy to join. So if you're if you're seriously interested in computer science education, it's a good thing to do because the UK is a kind of crucible for all of this in action. Um, but I think to most of the teachers, there's a, the CAS is about six and a half thousand strong. Um, there's about uh, the last count about 550 people are joining a month so it's growing really fast to like 10% a month um, but um, I would think that for most of them functional programming would be a very foreign concept so I have um, not you know, I've been busy enough just trying to get computer science established um, I think a, a completely separate exercise would be to try to um, uh, get functional programming established as a route to delivering this curriculum. I think that'd be an interesting and exciting thing to do, but I've not personally devoted any effort to that part because it would be a sort of distraction from the, the sort of high order goal of getting it done at all. Yeah, this is really interesting for me, especially to see how this, how this affects the next 10 to 20 years of computer science graduates and people coming into the field. It, it, I, I've seen some, some research that seems credible that, that shows that both boys and girls at a young age are interested at a very young age are interested in computing, but that, that girls specifically through sort of cultural uh, instruction and, and the, the way that their school informing them, which subjects they should take interest in sort of lose that interest before they get to high school even. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm, that's really, right. I'm really interested to see how this, this sort of a program might affect the gender balance in in computing and and it may you know I think it may take decades for this to really have an effect, but it's really interesting. Yeah, I think the whole underrepresentation of women in computer science is a sort of complicated socio-economic, technical question. Um, but I think one facet of it that I'm hopeful about is that if we do get um, you know computer science, including programming, established at primary school, then maybe by the time they get to secondary school, a much larger number of girls will think. Hey, I can do this, and it's a lot of fun. I'm not going to let any boys tell me that I can't do this. <laughs> yeah, and maybe maybe a larger uh, number of boys too. You know, we could we could use more. Yeah, more of all sorts, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, exactly, because in fact, if you talk to mo many so professional software developers these days, that they'll tell you that they they got to where they are in spite of, not because of their education. Right. Um, which I think is a terrible indictment. We ought to be because of. Um, so there must be a, a lot of untapped potential there. Um, so I'm really quite um, hopeful and optimistic, and I hope that the I think there's plenty of ways in which we can, you know, which we can fail. But at the moment, the UK is, you know, has taken this discrete step to make a step change in what the national curriculum says um, children should study starting at a very early age. So I think that makes it a very, you know, exciting experimental vessel. Really, and we just need everybody 
to um, put as much oomph as they can into making it a success. If uh, people have noticed my, band, 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 my output bandwidth diminishing, that's why I've been spending a lot of my time on CAS. Um, and I think that has probably uh, that's been another reason that more people have been stepping up to, to join in GHC, which I think is also a good thing. Um, so a big thank you to all those people who are contributing to GHC. Uh, you know, go for it and do more. You know, more people join in. This is um, it's a good time to be part of it. Thanks, uh, Simon, for joining. I know uh, the, the uh, fans are going to be excited to hear your voice as they go grocery shopping. <laughs> You've been listening to the Haskell Cast, Episode Three, with special guest Simon Payton Jones, recorded on October twentieth, two thousand thirteen. For notes and comments on this podcast, go to www.haskellcast.com. <laughs>